right, well, please pray with me one more time before we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day of worship and this time now to, to delve into your Word for this particular message today, and I, I pray that our fathers, uh, especially our, our dear dads here, uh, would receive special encouragement, but um, for all of us, God, your Word is always good, and I pray that it would be just what we need um, at this on this particular day, at this particular time, and even right in this moment. By your spirit, by your grace, we ask that you would encourage us and um, cause us to, to see you and, and love you and to want to serve you more. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this Father's Day morning in the year 2022, it's important to acknowledge the critical role that fathers play in the life of families and in our society as God designed it. Because this is for families and for, for, for societies, not just for them to just kind of function, but to flourish. In God's design, families and societies and cultures are to flourish. And as we know in our culture, the increase in fatherlessness has led to many, many disastrous consequences, including just skyrocketing rises in in crime rates, um, in violence, in all kinds of abuse. The existence of guns is not the only problem when we consider the tragic shootings in this last month or so. Along with the, the root problem of sin, with a capital S, it comes this issue of fatherlessness, the lack of fathers, fathers who are MIA, missing in action. In the vast majority of these tragedies, we can observe that. And we as a nation have gotten further and further away from how God says families and society and governance is supposed to prosper. So praise the Lord this morning, Faith Bible Church, that we have the Bible We have the Bible, and according to the word which contains everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, fathers are called by God to leadership in the home. And it's not only absentee fathers that is an issue, but also fathers who are absent. As one teenage girl not too long ago shared with me, described to me not too long ago, her dad was there but not present. A father can be physically present, yet spiritually and emotionally and mentally absent. So maybe Proverbs eleven fourteen can be applied here. It says, where there is no guidance, the people fall. Where there is no fatherly leadership, the people, the family, the children fall. By God's grace as Christians, we understand the gift and privilege that God has afforded us in our precious children. And dear fellow fathers, our calling is to shepherd and lead them faithfully. Pastor Vodi Balcom is is helpful as he gives a, a biblical description of the main roles of the father. And he points out that Christian fathers are to be priests, and prophets, and providers, and protectors of the family. 
And so what does he mean by that? Well, a priest is the one who, who goes to God on behalf of the people, right? So as fathers, we are to go and spiritually lead our family as we go to our Heavenly Father on our family's behalf, on our children's behalf, much like Job, who was so faithful in praying for his children. As prophet, as fathers, we are to proclaim the good news to our children, to our families, and we're supposed to explain God's word to them as part of that discipline and instruction in the Lord. We even represent God and his character to our family. And so godliness, that character, is very important as we fulfill that role of prophet. As provider, I think we know what that means, right? We're the one who's, who's supposed to be the main source of income, to give food, shelter, clothing, bring home the bacon, as they say, and other needs of the family. And contrary to today's world, where it just seems like it doesn't matter who's the primary source of income. As protector, the father is the one who watches over the physical well-being of his family, his children. He's the one who gets up when things go bump in the night. But in addition to that physical well-being, the father is to be the, the spiritual protector of his family, the watch over his children's souls, guarding them. So being the family shepherd is not just a job. It's not just a duty. Okay? It's a calling. It's a calling from God himself. So it's good for us to have this understanding and embrace that privilege, embrace that high calling. And it, it's a part of God's way of growing us as men. It's part of his way of growing us as men. To be fathers who are following Christ and depending on him and his spirit to help us fulfill that role of leadership. And I could go much, much more into all of that, but for today, I wanted to give some encouragement to our fathers and to everybody by pointing us to the character of our Heavenly Father. Okay, rather than expounding on, just um, fleshing out all the things that I've just started out saying here, I'd, 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 I've chosen prayerfully to focus on the character of our Heavenly Father today. Sometimes in the Christian life, we can get discouraged, right? I can get discouraged, especially at all the ways we feel like we're falling short, right, or we're failing, or we're not measuring up, and it can feel overwhelming at times. So I want us to, to see the character of God today, together. And if I can put it this way, the, the heart of God. As high a calling as our Father in Heaven has to to put us earthly fathers in this role of, of leadership and, and shepherding of our families. He's so gracious and kind and patient with us. That's why I started off from Psalm 103 uh, as we started the worship service today. God knows all of our ills and our struggles and our ails and our afflictions. And in this culture and sometimes even in our churches today, where so many folks are carrying out lives of quiet desperation, where all are in such need of knowing who God is through Jesus Christ, I want us to see and learn more of our great God, his character. Eyes off of ourself and eyes on him. Okay, behold our God. And let's get a more well-rounded, sharper picture of him and his heart. Our title for today's sermon, then, is Knowing God, the Father of Mercies. Knowing God 
the Father of mercies. And we're going to be jumping around in the scriptures today. Now, there's a couple main texts, but the big idea is that I want us to be encouraged that God is our unchanging Heavenly Father who overflows with mercy on his dear children. And this is what I want our hearts to be encouraged by and to, for, for our eyes to see today. Okay, be encouraged that God is our unchanging Heavenly Father who overflows with mercies on his dear children. And there's a handful of places in Scripture where God is called, quote, the father of fill-in-the-blank, right? For example, in Hebrews 12, verse 9, the author writes that God is the father of spirits. And you might understand that, the father of our spirits, in contrast to earthly fathers, who is the fathers of our flesh. Okay, the, God is the father of spirits. In Ephesians 1, 17, God is the father of glory. In Ephesians 4, verse 7, a few chapters later, God is the father of all, according to the Apostle Paul. In James 1.17, James calls him the father of lights, okay, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Some translations say no shadow of turning, right, from that. That's where the hymn writer got that line, great is thy faithfulness. But this leads us to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Again, the Apostle Paul calls him God, the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies. And that's partly where we're getting our title today from. So with that kind of introduction, we're going to have two main parts to the message today. We're going to expand on that Father of mercies in the second part of the message but first, I want to explore just a little bit, okay, a couple reasons why we might not really see or think of God as being merciful or the father of mercies, as Paul puts it. And we might have learned that God is merciful or that's one of his big attributes, right, mercy. Maybe we took a, a fundamentals class back in the day or we learned it through a Bible study or we heard a sermon about it. But I don't know that we've taken too much time to really consider the meaning and significance of that wonderful aspect of God's character. And I would say is at the heart of who God is. So before we get to expanding on the Father of mercies, uh, I want to talk a little bit about why we might not really view God as so merciful. And this goes back to the impression of God that I had um, as a young person going to church every Sunday and uh, learning things, some things in Sunday school and sleeping through a lot of things, other things in Sunday school, but learning very superficially uh, things about God. Some have a tendency to think of God in the Old Testament as the mean, stern God who punishes people very harshly for not listening to him, right? Like the, the Old Testament is all about the law, the Ten Commandments, and judgment. And then in the New Testament, along comes Jesus, and then it's a, a kinder, gentler God we see. Much more grace and love and compassion. So some examples in the Old Testament about why some people might have that understanding of, of God in the Old Testament. Okay? Genesis chapter 3, first of all, some people say, well, they only sinned once and then everything got ruined. Right? Well, that's pretty harsh. 
How about just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 6 when God destroys the whole world except for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives? How about Genesis 18 where he destroys entire cities, Sodom and Gomorrah? Then you get to Exodus, Exodus 32, and you remember that golden calf incident? And upon uh, coming down from the mountain, the sons of Levi were commanded to kill those who worshipped the calf. And 3,000 men died that very day. Some of us remember Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the priest, they were killed on the spot by God as they offered strange fire um, in in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which God did not command. Hey, all of those laws you read about in Leviticus and Numbers, hey, some of them were punishable by death, hey, like blasphemy and adultery, cursing of parents, homosexual acts. And then you get to Joshua, right, after the first five books of the Bible. And God is telling Joshua and the, the people to enter into the promised land, to take it over and to actually destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan. Then you go to 2 Samuel 6, and Uzzah is struck down by God simply for touching the ark when it appeared it might fall. Yet you read the book of Job, and why would God do such a thing to this righteous man? Why would God allow such tragedy and misery, suffering to Job? Even some of the Psalms, when I was growing up, I thought the Psalms were just... um, I almost didn't consider them as part of the Bible. They were all treated like like just these soft and fluffy songs. But some of the Psalms, Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6, it says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, God. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. And then it seems that we don't see much of that kind of thing in the New Testament, at least on the surface. So my point in giving all those verses is that we might get the impression that God is a father who is more strict and tough and unforgiving in the Old Testament and a lot more generous and soft and merciful in the New Testament. Like like he's softened up over time, right, as some... Some have said to me, like, about their own earthly fathers, right? Oh, my dad was really hard on us when we were young, but he he mellowed over time. So um, as far as God the Father goes, folks, this would be a false impression, okay? A false impression, a misunderstanding of who our Heavenly Father is, which I would like us to be aware of today, this Father's Day morning. There's one more reason, I think, why some folks, and maybe even some dear of our F. BC family, Faith Bible Church family, might get that kind of faulty impression and view of God, even from the New Testament, and even via the heart of the gospel itself. And I would argue that the heart of the gospel is found in the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith. That is that sinners are justified, and justified means declared righteous, They're declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are not justified by our own goodness or merits, but rather based on the goodness and merits of the Son of God, 
who loved us and gave himself up for us. Listen to 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, or you can turn there, but listen. 1 John 4, verse 9 and 10. It says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. So far, so good, right? God is full of love for us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Yes and amen. Oh, how he loves you and me, dear sinners. And then it says, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A propitiation. So the the verb of that noun is propitiate. And propitiate means to appease or to satisfy the wrath of God. Specifically, God the Father's wrath. So Jesus was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. He was the one who satisfied, who absorbed, who appeased the Father's wrath for us. So what is wrath? It is is fury. It's anger. It's indignation. It's ire. It's rage, even. But this is not like our anger and our rage, road rage, right? No, this is is holy, righteous fury against sins. And so, R.C. Sproul has a, a great little book called Saved from What? Saved from what? It's a question. And, and the answer that he gives and, and the explanation that he gives in the book is that we are saved from God himself. We are saved from the wrath of God that we deserved for committing mountains of sin against him. So I want us to notice, First John is, is that in the Old Testament or New Testament? It's in the New Testament, and it talks about propitiation here. It talks about God's anger and righteous indignation against sin needing to be satisfied. First John is not the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. So God is still not okay with sin. He's not okay with sinners living however they want to. He's not okay with immorality, with lying, with deceit, with violence, with hatred, with selfishness, with self-centeredness. He's not okay with people ignoring his glory. He's not okay with false worship. He's not okay with lip service, dear folks. People saying, I believe, I love you, Lord, and then not living that way. So the very heart of the good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, comes, and on the cross, he's bearing the punishment for our sins. He is the propitiation. Hey, one way to, to think about that word is he is the wrath absorber. The wrath absorber. He was nailed to that cross, suffering a bloody, excruciating death on our behalf. And for some of you, that verse is coming to mind, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him, so the first he is God, the Father. He made him, the Son, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was perfect, to be sin for us, 
Okay, he didn't become a sinner, but it means he bore the sin for us. He took the penalty for us. So that, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he takes our place in our stead, in my place, in your place. And why was that? It's because God, who is unchanging, holy, perfect, he cannot and will not allow sin to go undealt with. And that's the truth about God. A good human judge does not allow crimes to go unpunished. So a thrice holy God who infinitely and immeasurably exceeds even the best human judge's sense of goodness is going to deal with sin. And he would be right and fair if he judged us the very first time that we sinned against him. But the gospel is good news because, because at its very heart, we find that Jesus came to die on our behalf. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He received and accepted and absorbed again the penalty that we should have received for all the things that we committed against God. In our place, on the cross, 2,000 years ago, the sky went dark for three hours as God the Father was pouring out his anger upon his own son when we should have been there. We should have taken that punishment. We should have been penalized. In the great modern hymn that Keith Getty and Stuart Townend wrote, um, roughly 10 years ago now, In Christ Alone, there was a, a bit of a controversy because a hymn committee from the Presbyterian Church USA, the PCUSA, which is the, the liberal uh, portion of the Presbyterian Church, they wanted to add that song to their new hymnal. They were coming out with a, a new hymnal called Glory to God. And so they requested permission uh, from the songwriters to, to change the lyrics just a little bit to one part of one of the verses. Getty and Townend wrote, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the what? The wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that to, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So there wouldn't be anything wrong with, with the love of God was magnified. But Gideon Townend specifically wrote, the wrath of God was satisfied to communicate the truth of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the, the truth about God's, God's need to, for, for his, his wrath against sin to be satisfied. And so the chairman, the committee chair of that him writer committee, um, she said that the view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage God's anger would have a negative effect on the hymnal's ability to form the faith of coming generations, end quote. In other words, it, w it would not have been helpful for, for people in the church to, to be edified and built up, and so they, they decided not to put it in their new hymnal. And so... Even in this, at the heart of the gospel message itself, it might appear to some that God the Father is the mean one, and Jesus the Son, he's the nice one. Father, cruel, wrathful, Son, benevolent, kind. So with all this, I ask you, is it right to think of God, our Father in heaven, 
as cold and brittle, uneasily moved, but easily offended? And doesn't this have practical implications for us? If, if that's the way that we view God, even like maybe we don't think about it often, but kind of in the back of our minds or uh, we just, you know, of this, this dear book, and I'm saying this because I used to think this way uh, until I started learning the Bible. Okay? Um, how, if we thought of God as, as, as such, our Father in heaven as such, how will we go to him in times of distress? How will we go to him in times of, of trouble and despair? Why should we go to such an unfeeling, wrathful, judging father when we're struggling with sin, when we're finding life hard? Hey, the, the, the answer to all this is that we need to have a right understanding of the character of God. We need to know him as the father of mercies. So that brings us to the, the gist of the message today. And we're honing in on just this one character trait of God. Because, again, in 2 Corinthians 1.3, as Paul opens up that, that, that letter to the Corinthians, this, his second one to them, he calls him God, the father of mercies. The father of mercies. He actually says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And I just thought that was a, it just struck me that that, that was plural, first of all. And it stayed with me as I was just considering Paul and just his hardships with this church, who had, which had so many problems and so many struggles and so many sins to deal with and so many just uh, conflicts and and even him being accused of, of such um, awful things and uh, just needing to, to just in a humble and, and righteous way uh, bring forth some defense. But that description of God just struck with me and it stuck with me this last couple of weeks as I was just praying for uh, what I should preach uh, for this Father's Day Sunday. And once again, I think we're mostly aware that God is merciful, okay? especially us who are believers. He has mercy on us, right? We're going to sing as we conclude our service today, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. But that plural, mercies, it just stayed with me. And the Old Testament connection, right? So Lamentations 3, maybe that came to some of your minds, right? His mercies are new every morning. And I think we're going to get to that just uh, in a little bit. But that plural, just further study confirmed that this was expressing the overflowing nature of God our Father, the father of mercies. He's full of compassion. And his character brims with pity and care. And this is not to say that mercy is his only attribute, folks, okay, or even the most important characteristic. We're just focusing on, on this one today. And I, I trust and believe and hope that it will be helpful for everybody. Okay, so definitions are also always helpful, are they not? So mercies, oiktirmas is this funny Greek word. And there's two Greek words, actually, that, that is used. This one's only used five times in the New Testament. But it's this inward feeling of compassion which abides in the heart. Okay? This inward feeling of compassion which abides in the heart. It represents the display of concern over or compassion with someone's misfortune. Okay? The display of concern over or compassion with someone's 
misfortune. So God's mercies, the father of mercies. In classic Greek usage, that funny Greek word, it's actually a poetic form of oiktos that denotes the lamenting which occurred when someone dies. It expresses the sympathy and pity that one feels towards others that manifests in some form of help. Okay, so um, you're recognizing that mercy and compassions are overlapping here, right? So the way Wayne Grudem uh, defines mercy is God's goodness toward those who are in misery or distress. God's goodness towards those who are in misery or distress. God is the father of mercies. His is such sympathy for sinners in our distress, which desires to alleviate it. This is the unchanging character and heart of our Father in heaven. So when you consider that, and this is just a a meditation on the Father of mercies, plural. So he's not stingy about his mercy. He's generous. He's not limited. This plural is a Hebraism which expresses abundance. He has plenty of mercy. He's rich in mercy, spilling over with it. Right? He's the, the father of mercies, which is to say, yes, he's, he's spent a lot of it on me because uh, I'm very needy, but he has plenty more left over for you all. Okay? So the, the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it uses that... Greek term oiktirmas, 31 times. And I'm going to share some of them with you, and uh, especially the ones that have it in the plural. Okay, so listen to 2 Samuel 24, verse 14. And this is uh, David after he sinned by numbering the people, pridefully numbering the people of Israel. And the prophet Gad offers him those three punishments to choose from, if you remember 2 Samuel 24. And David answers, he says, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of of men. (laughs) David recognized that God's mercies were great, and not so much with men. In Psalm 25, 6, the psalmist writes, Remember, O Lord, your compassions, it's uh, translated compassions in the New Testament, in the NASB, but it could be mercies, it's plural in the Hebrew. And your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Also, Psalm 119, verse 156. The psalmist writes, Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. And then Psalm 145, verse 9 says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. And God has a lot of works, and his mercies are over all of them. And so I'm going to quickly give you uh, just a, a smattering of, okay, not all 31, but let me just read off the references for you, okay? Psalm 40, verse 11, 51, verse 1, 69, verse 16, 103, verse 4, 106, verse 46. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, Daniel 1, verse 9. 2, verse 18. 4, verse 27. 9, verses 9 and 18. Minor prophets, Hosea 2, verse 19. 
Zechariah 1, 16, 7, verse 9, 12, verse 10. And there's more, but I rifle off those just to highlight again. Okay, this is the Old Testament. The Old Testament God, who has the reputation as being the unkind, merciless judge, is, in fact, over and over and over again, described as one full of loving kindnesses and compassion and mercy, and not just mercy, but mercies, over and over again. This overflowing flood of mercies is found in the tender heart of God. This is his character, and it's not based on any merit or goodness or deservedness of people. This is just who God is. I want us to think about this deeply today. Dear fathers, fellow fathers, and dear everybody, how merciful, how full of mercies God is, merciful. He has a treasure trove of mercies for us. And it's when we are in deepest distress or, or darkest discouragement that he avails them to us. So Lamentations 3 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The New King James says, Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. And so, um, if you want to turn there in Lamentations with me for a moment, the context of Jeremiah writing this is in his lowest hour. It's after Jerusalem was taken over by Babylon in 586 B.C. And we know that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He writes this mournful book of lamentations. Okay, five chapters. It's made up of five dirges, which are like funeral laments. He's immensely grieved over the state of Jerusalem because of her sin. And so you imagine Jeremiah, this this faithful prophet, looking around this once great city. The elders who used to gather at the city gate discussing city plans, business plans, gone. Exiled to Babylon, conquered by pagan people in a pagan land. Young men who once played their musical instruments rejoicing, gone. Either killed in battle or taken captive. No more music, celebrating. Joy was gone from the queen city. But now... That crown had fallen from her head, the city of Jerusalem, her hands tied up in chains, taken as a slave to Babylon. And Jeremiah, he witnessed that desecration of the temple. He saw the destruction of the city. So you read these dirges, they're filled with mourning and despair of this prophet. And it parallels the the turmoil of Judah, the nation. So just... uh, Listen to, or follow along with me, Lamentations 3, starting in verse 1. So Jeremiah writes here, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in the darkness and not in light. And uh, maybe some of us are are going through some dark times right now. He says in verse 3, Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day, He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. 
In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. And so I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. So it's very bleak, very dark. Jeremiah is suffering, deeply afflicted here, in profound distress over all that's going on around him, and he, he feels like this is directed towards him. But then he says in verse 19, and this is like the center and heart of the book of Lamentations, amidst all this mourning and despair, Verse 19, Jeremiah writes, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, yet I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. What's he recalling? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. They haven't stopped, they haven't disappeared, they haven't dissipated. They never do. For his compassions never fail. Compassions never, ever fail. They're never completed. They never end. In fact, verse 23, they're new every morning. So he proclaims, great is your faithfulness, God. Great is your fidelity. Great is your word. Great is your loyalty. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. I'm going to stop there. And just to say that this is our God. This is our Father of mercies. To whom shall we go when the going gets tough? When we are in despair, when we're down in the dumps, we're, in the, we're stuck in the pit of despondency, in the muck of our sins. We need to go to God, our Father. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin thought this was super helpful. Quote, As there are a variety of miseries which the creature is subject unto, the creature being us, so God has in himself a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies, divided into several promises in the Scripture which are but as so many boxes of this treasure, the caskets of variety of mercies. If your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. End quote. Okay, indeed, this is our Heavenly Father, dear folks. And 
before we finish this second and last point, I want to bring up the the uh, the connection, the connection with our Lord Jesus. Okay, like son, like father, like father, like son. We've learned through our study of the Gospel of Mark over this past year or so that Jesus, the Son's heart and character, is one of utter compassion. And if we've missed that uh, during our time, uh, please don't miss it now. <laughs> I think it's hard to miss, actually. We've seen it many, many times over, right? Whether towards his 12 disciples, okay, who are always just, you know, stumbling, always misspeaking, always just... Uh, just in their pride and in their youth uh, and in their sin. Okay, the needy crowds of, of the people were just wanting for themselves the sick, the poor, the demon-possessed, the leper. Over and over and over again, Jesus displays his utter care, tenderness, compassion towards people. James writes later in James 5.11, The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Merciful. And um, that's that oiktirmas word again, that connected, related word. Well, today we should understand that the Father shares the same heart as his Son. Do you remember what Jesus told Thomas in John 14, verse 7? Okay, verse 7 is the right directly after the famous verse 6 in John 14, right? He says to Thomas, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And then when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What does Jesus reply to Philip? Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, implied in that statement is that the Son and the Father share the same essence, the same character. And this is part of the doctrine of the Trinity. And Jesus says in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So distinct as Father and Son, yet one in essence and in deity. So it's incorrect to understand the triune God as the Father having mainly this, this attitude or this countenance or this disposition of judgment while the son has this attitude or countenance or disposition of compassion okay, rather both the heart of the son and the father is one and the same okay, this is one god not two so they share in common that heart of redeeming love and abundant mercies which is what i've been trying to get across for this message so this is why Peter can exclaim as he begins his first epistle, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? Born again to that living hope, 1 Peter 1.3. This is how Zacharias, okay, the father of John the Baptist, can prophesy Okay, once his, his tongue is loosed, right? Luke chapter 1. And you, child, speaking of baby John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Sunrise, day spring, referring to Christ. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke 1, verse 76 to 79. See, God the Father and his Son have that sameness, that common feature. It's like when I hear my first son, Philip, break out in a particular laugh that sounds eerily familiar. Or I I see him excel or, or swing the ping pong paddle, and it looks like someone. Or watching my son, my second son, Joseph, bust out unconsciously and in rare moments in a celebratory dance shuffle after some minor accomplishment. It looks like someone. Or hear him express something in a specific, incredibly recognizable way. Like father, like son. What can be said of the father, capital F, can be said of the son, capital S. In this case, our father God and Jesus the son This heart characteristic that they have in common is this disposition of mercy, that kindness or goodwill towards those who are in misery or in affliction. They're joined in that desire to help people in distress. So as we conclude this message, I hope this sermon is for encouraging for our Faith Bible Church dads in particular but I think it applies to all of us who are God's sons and daughters, those who have been adopted into his family, purchased by the death of Jesus Christ, and sealed by the Holy Spirit, by whom we call God Abba, Father, Romans 8. Our precious Abba, Father, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. He's full of mercy, compassion, pity, tenderness towards those who are suffering and maybe even some of us who are distressed this morning. So Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to quote Thomas Goodwin one more time here. Listen, he says, As large and as various as are our needs, so large and various are his mercies. So we may come boldly to find grace and mercy to help us in need, a mercy for every need. All the mercies that are in his own heart, he has transplanted into several beds in the garden of the promises where they grow, and he has abundance of variety of them, suited to all the variety of the diseases of the soul, end quote. Let us remember, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that our Father is not cautious in his mercy and tenderness towards you. His multiplied mercies, he has everyone to match every single need. And that's his bent. That's his heart. That's his inclination towards us, his precious, beloved sons and daughters. John 16, 27. The Father himself loves you. Praise the Lord. I hope we've been encouraged by knowing God a little bit more this morning, the Father of mercies. 
Let's pray. Dear God, we're so grateful to have your word today. Thank you for the, the clarity of our calling as earthly fathers as we seek to shepherd and lead our families, our children. We're thankful, God, for the earthly fathers that you gave us. Whether they're believers or not, they were the perfect fathers for us, even in their imperfections. And even as Christian fathers, God, those of us who are, belong to you, we are yet imperfect. And so we're caused to look to you today, our Heavenly Father, who is holy and pure and perfect and unchanging and eternal and who is the Father of mercies. I pray that each of our hearts today is greatly encouraged that in your mercy towards us that you gave your Son to die for us. What more could you have done, Father God? What more could you have done, Jesus the Son? You gave your life. What more could you give? And so, what less can we do than to live for you, God, our Father? We can't even fathom all the good that you've poured out on us. can't even understand all the evil that you've forgiven us. But thank you that you are the Father of mercies. I pray that this immense vision of you would bring immense devotion from us and that you would receive all the glory in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.